friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Welcome to Skyline. So glad you're here this morning and um, excited to share uh, with you. Uh, we've been in a series before Easter about um, beholding Jesus in the resurrection and we've kind of hit Pentecost and so that kind of wrapped up. But we're going to do a couple different sermons about kind of people who beheld Jesus even after the Spirit came. One of those was um, Stephen in, in Acts 7. You know, he looks up and he sees Jesus and then uh, Greg's going to continue um, next next week actually with Saul as Saul meets Jesus on the road uh, to Damascus. Uh, but in, in the midst of this, I, I've been praying about uh, what God's doing in our midst. I've been praying about our church and what we're experiencing, and I really wanted to speak to it this morning. I've been traveling a little bit. I've had a lot of chance to talk to church leaders in the last month and um, people all over the nation who have been engaged in loving and serving the church, some for 50, 60, 70 years, some for just a few young people, um, and I feel like the Lord gave me some things to talk about this morning. So one of the things I, I just really felt the need to do is just to do kind of a, an update of the church. Where are we at? Like what's happening in our church and how do we see that? How does the leadership of this church see what's happening here and what are some um, adjustments we're making in response to that? What are some opportunities that we have? Um, and then all these things. So one of the things, if you've noticed, uh, we're growing. Has anybody noticed that there's more people here than there used to be? Uh, which is a beautiful thing. We, we love that God's using the ministry uh, that's been done in this place to bring new people, um, especially uh, because it feels like people are coming because uh, the, one of the, the core reasons I hear people say they're coming is they heard God's here. It's like, uh, I've heard that God's moving in your midst, and I want to be somewhere where God's moving, where he's present. We've had a lot of people show up because they've heard uh, that people here are getting healed and saved and delivered, that they're getting set free uh, from all kinds of darkness and bondage and difficulty. Um, they've heard that we love each other um, in beautiful ways, which I, I just totally have seen and believe it's true. And um, with all that, of course, is, is uh, pressures, right? When something grows, um, things get pressured. Um, things get changed a little bit. Um, and, and so one of those is like the seat you might have always sat in. All of a sudden, there's somebody in your seat, right? And you're like... Don't they know I sit there every Sunday? It's like, no, they don't know that you sit there every Sunday, and they're in your seat because you're late. So if you show up before, you'll get your seat. Uh, but yeah, it's just little things like that. It's, it's crowded, it's warmer, it's all these things, you know, and, and we take all the feedback that you have to give us about what's happening here and how we might 
um, um, fix it. We have pressures like our communion. The way we do communion used to be so beautiful when we were a tiny church because we just spread around the church and we just like gather in little groups and that was awesome when there's like 100 people here. But when there's 450 people here, it's like mass chaos, right? And one person's taking communion and they're done by the time somebody else is still in line. And so you're like making brunch plans while somebody is thanking Jesus for his death on the cross. And they're like, I'm trying to pray, I'm trying to pay attention, but they're talking about biscuits and jam and migas and all this. I'm like, it's hard to really worship in the midst of all that. And we've heard those comments, right? We've heard comments about sound, right? It's loud in here and it's all these things, right? And I'm like, yes, I agree. And so one of the things we're doing, so we're, we're going to be adjusting some things. I want you to hear this. We're going to be adjusting and trying to make sure that these things stay the way they should. So one of the things we're, we're doing with communion is we're, we're going to move communion back to the center of the service. And you're like, really? We just moved it to the end? Yes. Get used to change. Your whole life will be changed and you'll survive. It will be okay. I, I know. I, I don't mind change. Change doesn't bother me. I went to four, uh, let's see here. I went to three high schools in four years. I went to uh, five schools in six years from seventh grade on. And I'm here and I'm happy. It's all good. We're good. So we're going to do some changes there because here's what we want. We want communion to be reverent and worshipful. We don't want communion to turn into seeing your buddy and talking to them and sharing while we're trying to actually like worship Jesus through the elements, the body and the blood. We want to keep that sacred. And if anything, I think the American church needs help in a lot of ways, especially our evangelical side of understanding reverence and awe. Even if we don't have the theological belief that that's actually the body and actually the blood of Jesus, we know something sacred happens when we reverence Jesus. And it happens in all sorts of places and all sorts of different things, but I think especially as we take the bread and the cup, something significant's happening. And we want to make sure that gets protected. We want to make sure you can hear when you pray. And so we're, we're working on people like, I'm trying to take communion, and it's like I'm getting assaulted at the ears. I don't know if you knew this, but this sanctuary was not built for amplified sound. It was built in 1927, so if I took this headphone off and just started talking to you in the voice I am right now, every single person in this room could hear me. It was built for natural voices, natural singing. And so we're working it out. We're going to do some sound paneling in the barrel of, see that big barrel that like, like if you clap in this room, there's a four second reverb. If you know sound, that's a lot. That's a lot. Nobody clap. I saw you. You're not going to clap. You're going to test it. It's like, it's three and a half. Okay. Whatever it is. You know, uh, so we're going to do that. And guess what? It's going to inconvenience us because we're going to have to build scaffolding. To the, sink, to the ceiling, and it's going to take about six weeks probably to get it done. Um, so some of us are going to be worshiping for a while in the summer underneath the scaffolding, and we're going to have to keep our kids off of it. I'm telling you, <laughs> we're, we are going to be sanctified like you've never been before. We're just going to leave some like, you know, paddles on the side of it, just so you could just like when they get up there. Um, and my kids will be chief, so don't worry. We'll, we'll all be in the same boat. But we're, we're working like on, on these things. We, we want these things to be good, and we know um, it can be hard, especially for people who have, have any kind of hearing issues. The, the amount of sound bouncing around this room, we, like, we have compassion for that, and we're trying to fix it. We're doing everything we can. 
the other thing that just we're talking about is, is two services, right? We have one service. We love one service. If you know Greg and Todd and I, kind of the guys who are in the center of planting this church, we never wanted to be a big church. We never wanted to grow. In fact, we just didn't for a long time. And we're like, we love our little church. Well, guess what? God's doing something. So we're not going to get in the way of what God's doing, but we also want to do it thoughtfully. We want to do it carefully. And so um, we're waiting until the last possible minute. Uh, conventional church growth wisdom says when your room hits 80%, that's when you do a new service. We just say, who cares about conventional church growth wisdom? Who made that up? It's not in the Bible. Some guy wrote a book someday, and it's like business and marketing principles, stuff that just I, I just don't care about, just to be honest with you, for the church. Care about it for your business. Do that stuff for your business. Here, we're going to think differently. So we're waiting, and one of the things that's hard is our core value to have children in our sanctuary means our sanctuary is way fuller than most churches. Right? When the kids go out, look at all this space. I'm like, our church isn't full. Look at this. This is awesome. We just have tons of kids, and we want all of our tons of kids to be a part of this body, to be a part of this family, to be in this room and watch adults who radically love Jesus. We want them to see with their eyes what happens. Amen. You can clap for that or not. It's like... My buddy John Tyson had a sermon recently. He's like, if you're going to clap, just clap. Like, none of the, is this okay? Like, you know, just either, you know, go one way or the other. Either say, give the head nod or like, clap. It's okay. We're good. Um, so, I mean, all that stuff, like we're adjusting things. We're trying to figure things out as we grow. Uh, we've got a, this building here was built in 1927. Our back building was built in 1903. So, I mean, we've got stuff to deal with and it's going to keep coming, like, you know, replacing windows and doing all this stuff. We got birds flying around the sanctuary. We don't know where they get in, but they get in and it's hilarious because then Todd's, he'll spend the next two days <laughs> chasing birds around this building, which is kind of awesome. Uh, and, and so it's all this stuff, right? So that's like adjustments we're going to be making. Like we, we're going to make those. The other is like we have opportunities. So one of the good things that happens as a church grows is we can actually do some, some different things. And one of the things that we are really uh, excited about as our friend Brooke Stevenson comes on our staff, which I think ne is next week your first week or when is it? I should know that, but I don't. Next week. Something like that. He's going to be here. Yeah. You can cl don't clap for him. Don't do it. Don't do it. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, clap for him. There you go. Woo! Um, so Brooks is going to be heading up our, all of our discipleship efforts. You know we're a disciple-making church. One of the cores of that, that we're going to do is we're going to actually start offering like what we would consider a robust Sunday school ministry. So start offering classes at that 9 a.m. hour that actually fulfill what we think Christians need to know and be able to do to, to be a part of the kingdom of God. So there's going to be Bible classes. There's going to be probably some uh, classes about cultural issues and how do we equip people to know and understand. We're going to have classes on prayer. We're going to have discovery Bible studies. And they're going to be rolling through the year. You're going to have lots of opportunities um, to grow in your faith, but also one of the core things is to connect, to meet people. Because we realize as a church grows, the harder it is, the more we grow, the harder it is to get connected, to meet people, to know people. And we um, definitely, there's a reason the word community is in each one of our distinctives right? We're a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, a generational community. We care about community, but we also care about how community gets formed. We don't want to form community for community's sake. We want to form community around Jesus, 
around him, his presence, his reality. So we've got those opportunities. Um, we've got all the things that we've been doing, right? So if you're new, I'm just going to kind of roll through some of the things we do. You know, we have Sunday morning, we have Discovery Bible Studies here, our Sunday service. Uh, this last year, we've had uh, fifth and sixth graders go up there a couple times a month. We've got middle school youth group, high school youth group. We've got noon worship on Mondays. Uh, we've got Wednesday night worship. We've got a women's DBS in this building at 11, something like 11.30? 11 on Thursdays. That's right. On Thursdays at 11. We've got a men's DBS in Edmond as well. Um, I think we should be restarting our downtown men's DBS. Um, so we've got lots of ways to connect to Skyline. We've got our prayer ministry. We've got worship ministry. We've got all sorts of stuff. Uh, Sozo. We've got soul care, which I don't know if you heard the announcement today. We're doing another round of soul care. I'd highly encourage you to go through that ministry. Walk through inner healing. It's inner healing and deliverance. And I promise you, it will change your life. And it won't just change your life. It'll actually change your family's life. There's a way that you can walk with Jesus that will cancel out generational junk. And your generation will be the last one who deals with that stuff. That's his promise. Um, so Jessica's down front. You know, Jessica, down there. If you're interested in soul care, uh, talk to Jessica. <laughs> this is just a happy Sunday. I love it clap. So, uh, all that, but if I could say, if you would ask me, Jonathan, how should I connect to Skyline? What should I do? I would, I'm going to give you three, three ways to really deeply connect to this church. Number one is Wednesday night. Our Wednesday night worship is the source of everything you encounter on Sundays. All the joy, all the worship, all the power, all the healing, all the deliverance, all the stuff that we do that we're becoming known for, its source is Wednesday night worship. It's the thing that we've done to hold on to this idea that we want to see Jesus, we want to know him, we want to walk with him, and we want to be vessels for his power to get poured out on the earth. Wednesday night is the place, and I know, believe me, I have six kids, and we're doing sports, and we're doing all this stuff. I know how hard it is, but I'm just, I just have to be honest. If you're like, how do I get deeply connected to this body? That's it. It's the heartbeat, right, of this church. What's number two? Wednesday night. It, I won't say it all again. What's number three? It's Wednesday night. I mean, it's just like, that is the place. If I can tell you to do one thing to connect to this church, it would be that. Um, because um, it is the thing, like I said, that launched everything. Uh, we started it, what year was that? 2019 in January. Right, so I, just a, a quick thing. I want you to stand up if you were at a Wednesday night service in January of 2019. Would you just stand up? How many of you were at that, at that, maybe that first four? Guys, like, I just want you to know, this is what a remnant looks like. No, keep standing, keep standing, keep standing. don't sit down. This is, what, this is what a remnant looks like. When we say God's doing something, who, who will come? And we had a bunch of people just show up to this room and worship. And literally, all of these people who come on Sundays, and all the people who came on Easter this year, all the things that are happening go back to this little group of people. You can sit down now. Love you. Like... It's amazing. And since that January, Wednesday night, that first week of January, we have not stopped. We're just like, let's just, what if we just keep going? What if we just keep that thing at the center? And the amazing thing is in the last four years, I, we've seen more healing, more transformation, more salvation, more deliverance, more unity, more repentance, more of all the things that Jesus says, this is what the kingdom looks like in the last four years than I did in the first 20 of my ministry. And it just hit me. I was like, I'll never do anything else. That's it. Like we found this secret of how God works. Um, so 
All of that said, if you're here this morning and you're like, I'm, I'm new, I'm getting connected, uh, we've got a lot of really fun, a lot of parents who are coming in here because their kids have come here and their kids' lives have been changed and they're like, all my kid talks about is church, what's happening? I gotta come see this and I love that because the Old Testament says in those days he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. I think there's a generational work that this church gets to play a part in reconciling households to seek God together. Um, and so we're grateful that people are arriving here because they heard God is here, because there's life here. Um, but here, here's the thing. Here's what's dangerous for a church when it starts growing. When a church starts growing, it, it can be dangerous because we'll start making decisions that help us keep momentum than make the decisions that created the momentum. And we'll start seeing ourselves as a provider of things to the masses rather than a steward of the thing that God's given us. Israel was to be a blessing of all nations. What was the blessing? The blessing was the presence of God that he said, I promise you, I will be in this place when you're here. And the further they would drift from that place where he promised his presence to be, the more things got crazy and the less of a blessing they actually became to the world. And so it can be easy to come and connect to the life of a church and not connect to the life of the church. Jesus, like you come to connect to the source. You don't just come to connect to a pastor or a place, like a building. You come to connect to him. He says, in me, I have life. And so Skyline... If we're not careful, we'll catch what Oklahoma City has, which is beautiful in some ways, which is the ability to have cultural and social momentum in Christianity. I'm just going to tell you, most cities don't have that capability. We were in Philadelphia last week. There is no social or cultural momentum from Christianity in that place. We have it, which means things can grow really quickly and things can catch and people can talk. Where's the church? That everything's it's this. And then all of a sudden you start to grow and you start to grow for reasons other than like really what you want to grow for. And so I just want you to know we're thinking about those things and we want to be careful about how we grow and why we grow. And uh, Greg and Todd had this statement at the beginning is what you win them with is what you win them to. So if you win with bread and circus, guess what you got to do for the rest of your life? You got to bring the bread and the circus. You got to keep going. Jesus is standing on the cliff and Satan's like, jump off and the angels will save you. He's like, make yourself a spectacle. You'll always have a crowd. And Jesus is like, no, it's not my thing. And he just never played to that thing. So that's everything that we're thinking about. That's, that's what's happening. But I, I think there's something more happening that I, I really want to talk about that why... When you say, Jonathan, when you say like Wednesday night, when you say the presence of God, when you say these things that you're doing, the Holy Spirit's work and, and sozo and soul care, and all, why does all that matter? What, what, what's the, the thing? And I think too, it's like, why revival? Why do you talk about awakening? Why do you talk about all this stuff? And I just kind of want to spend some moments taking a look at what's happening, right? Because if we're not careful... What we do in the church will have nothing to do with what's actually happening in the world, which means we won't have any influence or impact in the world. Um, and so I think we have to know what's happening. We have to see it and we have to let that stuff that's happening in the world. It's so easy today to just swipe, swipe it away. Oh, that was, oh, that's awful. You see the headline and what do you do? You just click off of it. 
But guess what? You start to build a habit of clicking off of uncomfortable things and then heading towards the comfortable things. Um, and so I, I was just praying, like, God, like, what's happening in the world and how are we organized to match what's happening in the world? Um, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there's this famous story, I've told it before, I, I got it from our friend John Tyson. Uh, you know, in, in the midst of all this stuff, Nazism is happening, I mean, things are going crazy in Germany, he gets caught up in a movement to assassinate him, even though he's a pacifist, he's a pastor, I mean, like, the world is burning, right? Hitler, Germany, all the Christian churches are just giving up and saying whatever it takes to not get sent to a camp, to not get sent to jail, to not be marked. Um, right, and so in the middle of that, Bonhoeffer's grand idea was to start a seminary. <laughs> I love this. You're like, start a seminary? You need to build an army. You need to like buy some guns, get some bombs. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to build a seminary because I need to train pastors who will hold the line. I need to train pastors who will stick with the church and not compromise. So he goes out to this far eastern village that's on the border of Poland, and he gathers 10 or 15 young people. They're all in their 20s, and he starts training them. They do this daily life together where they pray and worship, and they read the Bible together, and they take walks, and they do all this stuff. He's building this community, and his friends start to get worried about him because they hear the things he's doing, and they all sound really radical. They sound over the top, and they sound like they might border on legalism. They're like, oh, man, I don't know. That sounds like legalism. We're, you know, grace. No, you know, not by works, but by faith, through grace, you know, all this stuff. And so his friend goes out to visit him and tries to talk him out of this radical gathering of pastors. He's like, hey, you got to, this isn't going to work, blah, blah, blah. And Bonhoeffer says, here, let me show you why we're doing what we're doing, why we're radical, why we're disciplined, why we're so engaged in this thing. And he takes on a walk, he gets to a river, they get in a little paddle boat, they paddle across, they walk up the edge of a hill, and they walk over the other side, and on the other side is a Nazi Air Force base, where there's thousands of soldiers drilling, walking, planes are landing, tanks are rolling around, and Bonhoeffer just lets them take it in, they're watching, and he, he points back at his seminary, he looks at it, he goes, this has to be stronger than that. Right? This has to be stronger than that. What's happening in the world has to be met by a church that has the resources to win, right? Because we're called to overcome the world. The question is, is what's happening in me and in the church, does it have a chance to overcome the world? So what's happening in the world? Let's take a look. I mean, just like even little simple things like this is affordability crisis, inflation, run amok. This is all the people who can afford a house. And it's basically 60 to 70% of people in America can't afford a house over $250,000. Guess what the average house in, in the United States, it's like 350. I mean, it's like, it, it's this thing of the American life is doing this. Anybody noticed the last three years? Some stuff happening, right? Like, like the way things were going now, everything that seems stable now seems unstable. Um, you have depression, anxiety, behavioral disorders by age. And what's crazy is, um, you know, the, the last one on there, all those, those are pre-COVID. What do you think those numbers look like post-COVID for young people? They're not better. Here, here's the effect of uh, devices. What's happening with children and teenagers? The hours they spend 
on devices. And look at what happens to the other important things in their life. I don't know if you can read that, but basically what happens is as your internet hours go up, your sleep, your in-person social interaction, and your happiness all plummet. So can I just tell you, when you give your kids a device, parents, this is what you're signing them up for. This is the data. Happiness, in-person interaction, sleep, which fuels the health of your body. If you don't sleep, your body will wither. And guess what? Our generation sleeps less than any generation in history. No wonder we're anxious and afraid and unhealthy. We got to sober up. We got to sober up. I can't read on that screen, so I had to look. Here's fentanyl deaths. Since 2000, basically zero to 70,000. That's just one drug. That's not all drugs. That's one drug. This is America, friends. This is the wealthiest country in the history of the world. This is what's happening in our nation. Here's deaths of despair. So the gray line is the uh, cumulative of all the other lines of suicide, alcohol-related drugs, deaths of despair, and again, that's pre-2020. People are dying because they don't know how to live. Who in this age can teach someone how to live, how to thrive, how to love, how to parent, how to be a husband? People are literally dying and there's no reason. The, the, the thing they're putting on it is despair. I could have picked any city, but this is the city I was in last week. This is Philadelphia, which now has the largest open-air drug market in the nation. Homelessness is out of control. The amount of human suffering on those streets. And you know what the answer is? The latest answer they've come up with is injection sites. Safe, safe injection sites where people can put heroin and uh, the big thing on the market there now is animal tranquilizers. And so you'll just see people literally zombie through the streets. And our answer is safely injecting them so they don't get a disease while they die. could have shown you San Francisco, Los Angeles, Austin, Portland, New York, Chicago. It's all over our nation. Human beings, sons and daughters, living in absolute horror and darkness. Mm. We have 2020, right? protests that turn into riots, violence. What the Bible would call lawlessness. And you know what happens when lawlessness takes over? The poor, the widow, and the orphan take all of it. It's not most of the people in this room who are suffering from these things. It's the people who can't afford to suffer anymore get even more suffering. Lawlessness. Have I sufficiently offended everyone now? 
This is what a society looks like when it no longer goes to God for judgment. It looks like people who claim to be patriots climbing over the walls of our capital, running through the hallways with weird costumes on, acting like they love something while they're demeaning it and profaning it. This is a group called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which just went through a uh, big controversy with the Los Angeles Dodgers, who canceled them and then got in trouble and then invited them back. I don't know if you can read the signs, but can I get a gay man, house of Jesus? They have a video that I just couldn't show you because they do a, a strip routine where the cross is a stripper's pole and Jesus is hanging on the cross while a man strips on top of it and gyrates on his face and hangs all around it. And this is the kind of thing where you just look and you go, I just want you to know these men are desperately loved by Jesus. He died on the cross for them to win their hearts. He looks at this and his heart just breaks. But we can't act as if this isn't a sign of something in our society which is broken. It's another example. Somehow, drag shows for children has become a thing. This is a little child putting a dollar bill in the thong of a grown man who strips for children. So friends, we aren't in the 1980s where you're like, you're wringing your hands about morality and you guys are overboard, you're blah, blah, blah. I just want you to know this is happening in our society. In a society that has more churches than any other nation in the world. This is what's happening. Just so we don't let ourselves off the hook. How about Christian leaders? We've all heard the stories, right, of these pastors who just, their inner lives and their practices have gotten warped by celebrity and by money and by adulation and by success. And so Christians don't have a high horse to sit on or even a platform to gloat or to judge. We're literally in the same boat. Children can't go to school in our nation without thinking about, is someone going to bring a gun in here? We can't have church without armed security so that we are safe and our children are safe. If your kid's on TikTok, just know there are movements of people who are trying to win their hearts. This is an entire movement called witch talk, which is trying to lure people into the occult. And they will lure them in and ruin them. Just telling you, it is real. Satan is real. 
and he is active and he is seeking. And if you are sleeping in these days, you will lose more than you could ever imagine. This is such a random one. This is a, a rapper, Lil Nas X, who created a satanic shoe and put a vial of human blood in every single one, and it sold out like that. $1,200 a pair. I bet if you went to the secondary market right now, they would be incredibly expensive. I don't even know. What's happening? <laughs> What's happening? Have you ever just found yourself, you're like, look, oh, God, what is happening in the world? What has happened to this nation that I grew up in a little town in Kansas and we saluted the flag and we prayed over lunch and we had this beautiful little community. What's happened? I just want to say, I, I don't show you all that to depress you, but I do show it to you to provoke you. Because I don't think we're provoked enough. And I don't think we're provoked enough in the right direction what the Bible says to do when things go this direction. But what's happening, what's happening is Romans 1. Can I just read it to you so you can hear this? And so many times we read this and we think, this seems really harsh and it seems judgmental and is God mean? Is God blah, blah, blah? But after we see those things, I want you to hear if these words ring true. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and in their foolish hearts they became darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. That sounds like our generation. It's like people are inventing ways to rebel against God. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Evil doesn't stay stagnant. It recruits. Evil is always recruiting. It is always after more and more human beings to pervert and warp and destroy but guess what? Goodness is always recruiting. And Satan is always after a body 
to express his will in the world. He wants human beings that he can possess, oppress, and use, but Jesus has a body, and it's us. The question is, is the life that the church possesses enough in this age to come against the death that Satan is bringing in the world? 2 Corinthians 10 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we have power to destroy arguments, but I think we've actually thought that maybe it's our arguments that destroy arguments. Can we just say, I don't think it's our arguments that destroy arguments. I think it's the power of God expressed through people that destroys arguments. Because Paul says, he says, I didn't come to you with wise and eloquent words. No, 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 no. I came to you with the power of the Spirit, a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. So in the midst of all this, right, what's our response? You're like, is there any good news? There's good news. I was on a plane back from Philadelphia. I was watching a movie. Uh, it's a movie called The Jesus Revolution. How many of you? Raise your hand if you watched it. Yeah. So I, I had read the book by Lonnie Frisbee. Um, and so I was resistant to watching the movie because I, I loved Lonnie Frisbee's story because he was messy and he screwed up his life and God redeemed him and then he screwed up his life again and yet God loved him and used him in ways that just confound us. And so I was worried that the movie wouldn't represent him, right? And then I got in an airplane, and it was like, here it is. And Annie's like, we're watching it. And I was like, okay. And then I'm like, it's not the kind of movie, if you have a heart for revival, you should watch in public, right? Because you you'll just weep. And I just, I just sat in my chair, and we just, I just wept at watching these teenagers who were so far from God, so lost in drugs and sex and rebellion come to faith in Jesus, get baptized and sit on on the front row of church with Bibles, desperate to be, just be near God. And when I thought about Lonnie Frisbee, friends, he was 18. Do you know that? That movie doesn't display it well. He was 18 years old when all that happened. 18. It's crazy. And so I'm watching this and I'm like, God, this is what it feels like you're doing in our generation. And it makes sense because really we're living in the blossoming of the sexual revolution. They were living in the seeds being planted. We're living in the after effects. What happens after this comes to full bloom? And you know what happens? Despair. Despair. And so I stood on this plane just praying, God, would you do this again? Would you do this again? Would you revive? We're experiencing part of this at our church, but would you come and would you do this again? And at the end of the movie, they quoted this phrase from this Time Magazine article, this one. Guys, think about today. Can you think about next week? If there was a Time Magazine article or... Uh, something on CNN or MSNBC or some big publication that said the Jesus revolution. You read the article, it's the most glowing review from a secular standpoint. I mean, the guy was just, at, I mean, it's like, it's incredible. There's not a single, there's barely a single critique in it. 
But this quote came up on the screens, or came up on the screen there, and it's from the article. Jesus is alive and well and living in the radical spiritual fervor of a growing number of young Americans. And it hit my heart like a million tons. And I was like, that's it. That's what I want this church to be about. Someone could say something about this church, they would say Jesus is alive and well and living in the radical spiritual fervor of a group of people. And especially young people. Because God always awakens the young. He releases the young. He empowers the young. And so here's my hypothesis. If I look at all of those pictures and I read the news and I listen to all the stuff and it doesn't bring about in me a radical spiritual fervor, that has to be the response, right? It's the only thing that can match that thing. And, and Jesus, he addresses it with Israel. He goes, what can I compare this generation to? He said, I played the flute and you didn't dance. I sang a dirge and you didn't weep. You're missing it and it's right in front of you. You have no idea the son of God is in your midst waiting to give you the freedom you want. And we see this, right? We've seen the first fruits, I think, in Asbury. An outpouring of the spirit by young people for young people. And it's fascinating that almost everything, every legacy ministry in America tries to do to reach young people doesn't work. But every time people just give a chance for young people to meet Jesus, they actually show up. People are like, how do you have so many young people at our church? I was like, I don't know, all we do is worship and pray. We just love Jesus. And guess what? It turns out young people want to love Jesus. They want to love Jesus. They want to know Jesus. They want to see Jesus. And if you would get out of the way, they would actually come and participate. And I love that Asbury, at one point, they shut the main chapel off. If you were over 25, you could not get in. Because they're like, this isn't for you. You'll mess it up. Because you'll judge and you'll critique and you'll think you should be on stage and you shouldn't. You should be at the altar. You should allow the weeping and repentance in these young people to take your heart to the altar and weep over the state of your own heart and then over the state of the world. So here's what I think God's doing. I think God's raising up a revival generation. I think he's doing it here. And honestly, it feels so compelling to me. It's the only thing for me right now worth giving my whole life to, is to see a whole generation given to the Lord, marked by him, by his love, his grace, and mercy, and see them sent out into the world, like yeast in the dough, just into every different place. And so it's fascinating, because Joel 2, right, says, says young men will dream dreams, see visions. Young women and young men will prophesy. And then it says old men will have visions. So there's this thing about young and old when God comes and he restores. There's something about the book of Acts. What do you do? He saved entire households. There's a restoration of the family. And if every generation needed a restoration of the family, we're it, friends. We're it. We're living in it. 
So Isaiah says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. There are divine windows of mercy where God says, I am coming near. Do you want me? And the danger is we could say, not yet, Lord. <laughs> Let me get my kids raised. Let me get the house bought. Let me get my business built. Let me do these things. And we miss the window. This opening from heaven where God says, I'm ready to pour out. Do you want me to pour out? We were in Philadelphia this week and we ended up with a family who Annie's uh, grandpa had worked with in the Billy Graham crusade. And Annie told me this, and I don't know Kirk, Kirk's here, so I don't know, I think this is true, but she said that her grandpa went to a Billy Graham crusade one night, changed his life, and then he went, did he go 30 days in a row? 30 days in a row. Is there anything in your life right now you would show up 30 days in a row for? 30 straight nights? I hope so. If revival broke out in this church, would you want to come for that? You would want to come, but I just want to challenge my heart. There's a lot of me that's like, oh man, it's going to be costly. It's going to be sacrifice. But if God was filling these altars with the most broken, with pictures of the people we saw on screen today, if they were coming to our altars weeping and repenting, would you show up 30 nights in a row? I hope so. Because I just want you to know, revival's better than basketball and soccer and volleyball and activities and your kid's education and their college fund and your retirement and golf and all that stuff. The question is, does God know that you want him more than you want those things? Can you prove it? I'm convicted in my heart about these things. Um... And I feel like the person who's like, I want to want them. Do you feel that? Anybody feel like, oh, Lord, I want to want that. I believe. Help my unbelief. Um, so I'm going to invite the band back up. I want you to stand to your feet. <clears throat> just close your eyes for just a second. Can we just spend a moment? Can I just... I think we have an opportunity and an invitation in this place to radically seek God in a way that invites Revival that actually sees what's happening in the world and responds the way the Bible says to respond, which is to blow the trumpet, to fast, to weep, to tear your garments, to call a sacred, solemn assembly, and to pray. And God says, when you do that, I pour out my spirit on those kinds of people in those kinds of places. So I know this message felt heavy, but I'll be honest, on the other side of praying this, I feel more hopeful about the church than I ever have. Because God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. 
His word doesn't return void. He never allows the darkness to overcome the light. And so when it feels like there is all the light is getting eclipsed, we're on the edge. We're on the cusp. I think we're so close. So I thought about how to respond to this this morning. And I was just like, God, what do you want to do in our church? And how do we mark this moment? How do we respond to the sobering of our heart? And I think that verse in Joel is really important. I think that that thing about in those days, what kind of days? The kind of days we just looked at the screen. In those kinds of days, I will pour out my spirit. But listen, he says, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. I don't need religious you know, demonstrations. I want hearts. I want your heart to be ripped. When you see children putting dollar bills in the thongs of grown men, I don't want you to think of political solutions. I want you to rip your heart in two and say, God, come. homelessness rampant and drug abuse and women being just abused and harassed. You're like, God, come. Come. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. And afterward, after all these stuff, what will I do? I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters. Listen to this, the young. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, listen to this, both men and women will prophesy. I'll pour out my spirit in those days. I'll show wonders in the heaven and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and there will be deliverance. God delivers his people over and over and over again. So as I thought about, Lord, how do you do this and what should we do? And, and, and I know it's Sunday morning and we're always thinking about time and all these things, but we don't want to miss moments. We don't want to allow the clock to dictate what we do. So I, I felt the Lord stir in my spirit to um, respond in a very specific way. And so I, I want you, if you're under 28 years old this morning, if you're in this room, you're 28 or under, I want you to come down front to the altar. I want you to come down front. which isn't much. It's the size of a mustard seed. I want to actually like give you a mantle of revival. 
say, this is what your life should be about. Your whole life should be about seeking God to see your friends and your family and this world reconciled to God. Given to Jesus, you're like, God, I will be a part of that kind of movement. That thing in Asbury, that's not just Kentucky. That can happen anywhere where we just give our whole hearts to him. Amen. So I hope your heart's stirring right now. And then I want to ask you, hey, everybody, just come, keep coming close and let's squeeze in. Get tight, get tight, get tight, get tight. All right. And if you're over 50 in this room, I want you to come down now. If you're over 50, get down here. These are your kids. <laughs> Some of you literally... These are your kids. There you go. Squeeze in. Close fellowship. It's okay. Come on. If you're over 15 here, I just want you to know your call is to serve the revival. To use your wisdom and your money and your passion and everything you have to see a younger generation get lifted up to leadership and released. So many times our older generations become the ceiling for the younger generations and they leave church in their 20s and 30s. So they're like, I don't want to wait till I'm 50 to be a leader. Well, why not? We say older generation, we put our hands together and we wrap around them. We said, we'll give you the safest place we've ever seen to grow in your gifts and your abilities and your wisdom and your knowledge. You will grow in the grace and favor of God in this place. And I think we'll see something beyond our imaginations happen here. So over 50, I want you to look, these are the people you should be meeting with, having coffee with, going to their house and praying over their children and their marriages and their dating relationships and their friendships. You should be showing up at their work and reading the Bible with them and saying, I want to disciple you. I want to be a part of what God's doing. But it's not about me. It's not about my thing. It's about you. So I'm willing to decrease so that you can increase. And I, I just want to make a, a solemn promise. Skyline is not going to wait until you're in your 40s and 50s to let you get a lead. It's going to be soon. It's going to be soon. If you're in the middle, you're like, what do we do? I just want to say, you raise your kids to be revivalists. Most of you in the middle, you've got three, five, seven, nine, 14-year-olds. Like, this is our job, is to get our kids in these places as much as possible so that they know with your life as much as they know with your words what's actually important. And if you're not careful, what you will say with your, your words is God is the most important thing. And what you will say with your actions is actually what's most important is sports and business and money and fun and all this stuff. And I just want you to know, let's not be hypocrites. Let's not be hypocrites. Let's say I can show, I can demonstrate with my calendar, with my money, with my intelligence, with my everything I have, I can show that the kingdom of God is first in my life. I can demonstrate it. Amen. So I, I want you to close your eyes and pray just real quick. And the, the band's just going to play for pray, uh, play for a little bit, just kind of softly. So Jesus, I just give these young people to you. I see little kids as young as like three and five. And I just give them to you for revival. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit right now, if you're that 28 or under, God, what does my role look like in this revival? Who am I for you in this generation? Stir my heart right now to see a vision or a dream. 
Give me a scripture that will root my life in you forever and ever that I can anchor myself to your word, Lord. Show me, Jesus, what it is. You might be having dreams about your workplace right now. You might be having dreams uh, about a neighborhood. You might be having dreams about your school. You might be having dreams about your hometown, where you're from, and be like, God, what are you going to do in that little town? Because you love all these people. You're not about cities or, or, or just certain things. You love everyone. But what's your part to play? Ask him, Holy Spirit, what is my part in this coming revival? If you're one of the over 50s, will you just commit right now to being a supportive generation to say, God, I will give my time, my money, my wisdom to see the church renewed in my generation. I will not hold on till I die to all my authority, all my power, all my, listen listen to this, the power of blessing. If you're over 50, you have the power of blessing. Read your Old Testament. You can bless these people with destiny and with future and with gifts and abilities. Don't wait until it's over. Don't wait until it's too late. Now's the time. Even now, you might see someone in this room say like, I need to go and I just need to put my hand on them. I need to bless them in Jesus' name because they need to hear it. And it might be from a grandparent or a parent, but you're just like, I don't know why, but you need to hear this. If you're in the middle, you're like, we're in the messy middle. Amen. I'm raising my hands. I'm in the messy middle. Jesus, we give you our families. Jesus, we want to be radical ones. And I just need you to know, friends, Paul would show up in a city and bring revival while he was making tents. So this isn't just about missionaries. Paul's like literally running a business every day. And then every night he's preaching the gospel with his, like, oh, everything he had. He's discipling people and loving people and saying, I'm going to pour out every last drop. I'm going to withhold nothing of my life from you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for all the children. I pray that we would have children of revival in this church. I pray that they would go grow up in the goodness and peace of God, that they would be like uh, William Wilberforce and his friends, the children of the Great Awakening, who went on to do massive restoration projects and social justice. Like, like that would be the story of our little kids in this church, as they would say, I grew up watching the power of God poured out on a people, and now I know I am equipped to go forth in the world and see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, I want to participate. Would you say those words in your heart? Jesus, I want to participate. No observers in this church. Jesus, I just pray that we would have zero spectators in this church. We would only have participants, the priesthood of all believers, that every single gift would be valued and treasured. This wouldn't be about platform or celebrity or worldly talents, but it would be about prayer and repentance and the Holy Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, I pray that in Jesus' name. Okay, before we move on, can we just take a moment and would you just turn in your little circles and would you just gather in threes or fours and would you just pray? Would you just like, just, you may not know people, I know it's awkward, but come on. Would you just pray? Ask God to do a mighty work in the pews out there. Would you gather, messy middle, get together, pray? Pray.